0: We've come to the final passage of our study in the letter of James. I introduced this series actually on February 4 this year. I don't know what to do with myself in a a sense because I've never actually introduced a series and finished it in the same year. Uh, And and so this is a first for me, but it has been uh, about nine months almost to the Sunday uh, as I attempt to uh, wrap this up. This morning, When you select a title for a sermon series, by the way, uh, you do so with some fear because you want to select a title that's going to uh, express the major takeaway of the book. And, and sometimes you get down the road in the book and studying it, you're like, wow, that title is a little bit off. I wish I would have uh, adjusted it. But I think that we saw again and again as we studied this letter, this theme of living up to your faith. You say you're a believer, now act like a believer. That's James' message again and again in this letter. And really, that should be convicting for all of us because James is writing not only to relatively new believers who have no prior knowledge of how to live their life in Christ. Think of that. There's no prior generation of Christians. They're the first. But they're a generation of believers who have put their faith in Christ for His death and resurrection and everything James is saying is, is giving them the basics, the ABCs of how to live their life in the Christian faith. And if, if, if we look at this and say, wow, this is an area I need to grow in, we're, we're, this is, these are areas that we need to walk in regularly and this ought to be basic stuff for us. And if I could put it this way, if we have grown up knowing the Lord and claiming to walk with Him, at the least we ought to be aware of These basic issues James is addressing here in the letter and we should strive by God's grace to live out these characteristics in our life as his children. But what you will notice as we come to the end of the letter of James is that James does not end his letter the way almost every other New Testament letter ends with this final greeting. Instead, James gives us one last shot of exhortation, literally a single sentence That's designed to encourage obedience to the rest of the letter. It's like he spent all his time admonishing us to behave a certain way and to think a certain way and to love a certain way. And now he says, now go live this way. But in doing so, he doesn't directly encourage us to follow his teaching. Instead, James wants us to commit ourselves to helping others to follow his teaching It's really kind of surprising. This is the last thing he says. We're supposed to help another person who has strayed from the path. So let's look together at this single sentence. He says, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, someone brings him back. Let him know that whoever brings a sinner back from his wandering will save his soul from death. That's the sinner's soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins, the end. So what do we make of this? Well, etched into my imagination from childhood is a painting that many of you probably have also seen, I'm guessing. I think that I must know this painting from a Bible storybook that my parents would read to us when we were very uh, small children. It's probably one of my earliest memories, actually, this these storybooks. And, This is a shepherd in the mountains who has found this one lost sheep, illustrating, of course, Jesus' parable in the Gospels. And the artist is Alfred Seward, not a household name. Alfred was a British painter who was brought up in New York in the 1800s, and he painted a lot of uh, paintings, and he actually had some of his work displayed in the Royal Academy of Arts. Uh, but he, wrote, he, he painted this when he was still in his 20s in the late 1800s, and I don't think any of us would recognize any of his paintings today, but this one painting has gone worldwide, and it has been seen everywhere, probably by all children growing up in any Christian family. This shepherd risking his life on a high, treacherously steep mountainside, reaching precariously down to lay his hand on this single lamb, who has wandered off and gotten himself into a lot of trouble, and the lamb staring up at him with recognition, perhaps not even aware of the danger that he's in. How like us and our Lord Jesus Christ. Think of the commitment and the compassion shown in the shepherd's willingness to bring back this one lost lamb. It reminds us of Jesus' saying in Luke 19, 10, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And surely every one of us this morning who has been rescued by our good shepherd can rejoice in that mission, the mission statement of Jesus Christ, to seek and to save the lost. Because we were helpless and desperate Unaware, actually, of how much danger we were in before we came to Jesus Christ, when Jesus sought us and brought us into the fold. And yet, Bible stories and even famous illustrations like this one of divine truth can also be misleading if they are not anchored to the text. In fact, Jesus' mission statement that he came to seek and save the lost is not found with the context of this parable of the lost sheep. The parable of the lost sheep is found in Luke's gospel in the context of the Pharisees' criticism of Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners. Here's the text in Luke chapter 15. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. How dare he? So Jesus told them this parable, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he came home, when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors and saying to them, rejoice with me, I found the sheep that was lost. Let's celebrate. Just so, Jesus says, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance, referring to the Pharisees. And as we continue to read the chapter here in Luke, Jesus next makes the same point in the parable of the lost coin and then in the parable of the lost son, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. That's the chapter content of Luke chapter 15, B- better known, the lost story of the lost son as the story of the prodigal son. Why does Jesus tell the story of the prodigal son? to give a wonderful illustration of a son returning to his father, that is God's people, Israel, returning to him. And and God looks down the road and here comes his son and, and God, the father, rejoices at the return of Israel. Yes, in part. But the true point of the parable of the prodigal son comes at the end of the story when the older brother shows up, ticked off that dad is throwing this party for his loser kid brother. Who did all of that and, and uh, put the family to shame? And Jesus uses the parable to tell those who were unloving toward these lost sinners that they were wrong for turning them the way. They, they should have been compassionately turning them back to God. We see a similar message in Matthew 18, where Jesus also uses the parable of the lost sheep in a different context. In teaching his followers about the coming kingdom, Jesus brings a little child and sets that child in the midst of them. And in verse 3, he says, Truly I say to you, unless you become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he says in verse 5, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones uh, who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him that, uh, that a, a millstone be fastened around his neck and he be drowned in the depths of the sea. And then Jesus continues with this same tone concerning these little ones down in verse 11. He says this, See that you do not despise these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see my face, the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray? So is it not the will of my Father who is in heaven that none of these little ones should perish. You see what's going on in both of these contexts? Jesus is our model for showing compassion to those who have wandered away, and he is our model for desiring to graciously lead them back. But what he is teaching in both contexts is that those who follow him should be willing to bring sinners back that his disciples must show compassion and mercy to those who have wandered and bring them back to the Lord. In fact, do you know what comes next in Matthew 18, starting in the very next verse after this parable? The next thing Jesus tells them is, if your brother sins, go and point out his fault so that he will listen to you and and to your appeal, and you can win him over. You can bring him back. You see, in the parable of the lost sheep, we are the shepherd. Jesus wants us to identify with his compassionate shepherding and to go out of our way to diligently and sacrificially bring a wandering one back to the fold. That's how you and I are supposed to think about those who have wandered away. Whether we know it or not, we are our brothers keeper we are our sisters keeper and james applies this principle to the church in james 5:19 and 20 we have a responsibility he says by virtue of our being in the flock of god a member of god's family to encourage Other sheep. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. So here's an example. It's a true story, actually. One couple missed another couple at church. One Sunday, this is in a previous ministry, don't start looking around. Uh, One couple missed another couple at church one Sunday, and so on Monday or Tuesday, the husband who was at church called his friend and said, hey, where were you? Are you guys sick? Are you okay? Well, after some awkward conversation, the friend said, well, actually, we were at the flea market. On Sunday, we have a booth there on Saturday, you know, and we were doing so much business. And it was, uh, you know, we, we just thought, you know what, we're just, we're just going to come back on Sunday and, and, and keep selling. And I know we shouldn't do that, you know, but that's, that's what happened. And well, the following Sunday, they missed church again. And, and, and the same conversation. We were at the flea market, only this time the man really encouraged his friend, you know, you, you don't need to get into the habit of missing church. The Bible says we need to be together and build one another up. Well, after the third Sunday in a row in which this couple missed church because of the flea market, the man said to his friend, hey, let's go talk to this guy. So they took him to lunch, and they pleaded with him from Scripture. He said, now, we know there are times you can't prevent being, being at church. We, we get that, obviously. But as much as we can, we can't get into the habit of, of missing the fellowship of believers. We need to listen to the preaching of the word. We need to worship with other believers. And they talked to him about this. And the Holy Spirit worked in this man's heart through this conversation. And the man who had been missing church said, you know, you're right. I really have not ever made that a priority in my life. And I know that it's wrong. He said, you know, I've been in church all my life, but I was just, have just done it out of habit. And he went home, and he talked to his wife, and the wife was really grateful as well. And and sure enough, they were there on that Sunday. And the Lord used that event, both in the man's life and his wife's life, to say, you know, we weren't really yielded to the Lord in this area of Sunday worship. We've always just gone to church out of habit. And they surrendered this part of their life to the Lord. Now, James doesn't give us any details to show us here's exactly the step-by-step in how to bring a person back. We have some good information from Jesus Himself in in, in Matthew 18, I just mentioned a second ago. But this story illustrates the kind of dynamic that James ends his letter with. He is saying that the church should function in a way that brothers and sisters are watching over one another, compassionately, not judgingly, but compassionately watching out for one another, watching over one another, that they are submitting themselves not only to the Lord, but also to one another as they, they continue to follow the Lord together. This is the kind of body life that is necessary if we would ever be able to do what James is suggesting here, to bring back the wanderer compassionately. Do you agree with that this morning? Can you see that this is how the Bible is asking us to live as a church? Because there are several decisive components to the dynamic described in these two verses that we have to acknowledge if we're going to obey James's final exhortation in these verses. What are these decisive components? Well, the first decisive component is that there are two distinct paths in view here two and only two. And this has come up in James before. In verse 20, the ESV has the word wandering. You see that? That's why I underlined it. That's their translation of the expression the wandering of his way. I wish the word way were in the translation. It's not. It's a little deceptive. The NASB actually does a little better job uh, with this particular verse. But it's it's the wandering of the way, or the NASB has it this way, the error of his way. The idea is that there is a way that is in error, which this sinner has wandered into. He's strayed into this erroneous way. And if there is a way of error, that means there's also a way of truth. That's why James says, if you look at verse 19, if anyone among you wanders from the truth. And in verse 20, we see that the one who has wandered from the truth has wandered into error. And, 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 and James has been telling this, this to us for the entire letter, actually, early in our, our series. And then I did it in the middle of the series at some point. I explained how James's style in his letter, is, is like proverbial wisdom literature, which, we, which they had in Jewish literature, and we have it in the Old Testament also. Uh, the stuff in the Old Testament is inspired by God, it's, but it's wisdom literature. It's the kind of literature they would write in their, in their Jewish culture. And it's like that because James is episodic, moving from one idea to the other, often very quickly, just like Proverbs does and also because James uses the word wisdom at key places in the letter, which is where it came up when we went through our series, the idea of James writing a kind of wisdom literature. But the other reason he writes this wisdom literature is because James is often presenting two paths, two ways to walk, just like Proverbs. And he's saying, don't go this way, but go the other way instead. If we were to study the book of Proverbs, we would see things like this all of the time, these two ways and in Proverbs, we read that the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter to the full day, while the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. Proverbs 1 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Uh, Proverbs 10:1: A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is sorrow to his mother. You've got one way to go, and you've got another way to go. There's always just two paths. And we read this again and again in Proverbs. The wise of heart will receive commandments, but a babbling fool will come to ruin. The same pattern is in James's letter. In fact, we can even turn the teaching of James into Proverbs. I showed you several examples like this. Again, if we rewind the clock and go back to maybe sermon number 17, I can't remember exactly which one it was. Uh, But James, for example, has this famous text that we all know where we should be doers of the word and not merely hearers who deceive ourselves. And he goes on to say that we must persevere in following the word through which we will know God's blessing. We could turn that exactly into a proverb and, and, and say that the wise hear the word of God submissively and persevere in obeying it in God's blessing, but the foolish forget the word they hear, leading to their self-deception. It sounds exactly like what Proverbs is saying. We could do the same with so much of James's teaching. Because James brings to our awareness the fact that we do not live up to our faith in so many ways, that we, are, that we should be on the path of light and, and, and so forth, but that we, we tend to meander into the path of darkness and we need to come back to that path of light. James teaches in this letter that we should come before our generous God in prayer continually, sincerely, and fervently asking and believing, but instead, he says, we doubt God's goodness, or frankly, we don't even ask, we don't even pray. We should receive God's word and eagerly obey, James says in chapter one, but instead, we often bristle when the word calls us out, or we ignore it and continue on in our sin. James says when it comes to living a devout life, we can all talk a good game and sound like we're full of wisdom in the Lord, and we love Him, but the truth is we are sometimes too proud to serve lowly people without anyone knowing or anyone caring, and we sometimes flirt with the sins of the world. James says we judge people when we should love them and pray for them. James says we come on Sunday and stand and bless the Lord and praise Him with the same mouth that we use to criticize other brothers and sisters. Like our Lord Himself, we are called to meekness and humility and self-sacrifice that promotes peace, James says, and yet he says at times we are full of jealousy and selfish ambition that promotes conflict. Instead of drawing near to God, at times we become the enemies of God by our cozying up to the world. We arrogantly make plans without taking God into account rather than bowing to his will. And all of these expressions we have covered in James as we walk through the text. All of them and more are in James and he's showing us two paths and it comes down to the fact that there are only these paths, a righteous path of God's will that I submit to in humility, consistently desiring to bring him glory and an unrighteous path that runs away from God's will that I wander off to when I'm following my own sinful desire. And James says, do not be deceived. There are only two paths. If you are not following the path of God's will, you are on the other path. There is no middle of the road. In fact, when you look at these paths, I love, I love this picture. I've been using it for many years because it looks like the trails are both the same. One just goes to the left, one just goes to the right. And you know what? That is the deception of those paths. When you begin at the beginning of the path, they might not look much different. Or one might look more inviting than the other. The wrong one might look more inviting. But the point of the path is not the journey. It's not the beginning. It's where the path leads. It's the end of the path that we have to worry about. Now, once we have that fact firmly established in our minds, we have to acknowledge a second decisive component in this text. And I'm calling this component wandering sheep. You notice here in James's words that there's an acknowledgement of the fact that we who are in the flock from time to time will wander off. When James says, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, he's not including this exhortation at the very end of the letter, like at the pinnacle of the letter. At a key point here, at a big symbol crash, he's not saying this on the far-off chance that there might be some random time where some member might just happen to possibly wander away from the path. No, he knows this is going to happen, especially in a time of persecution, as he's writing to those who are scattered abroad because of persecution, especially because of trials. As the hymn writer says, he knows we are prone to wander. We've encountered this word before in James, this word uh, wander. It's the word from which we derive our word planet. I've told you this before. Planao is the verb. Ancient astronomers could see that the stars turned all together in the night sky with their relative distances fixed, turning together, absolutely never wandering at all, just staying together. But they also noticed that there were some stars who had a mind of their own. And they would wander on their own path through the night sky. And so they were given the, names, the name wandering ones or planets. So after James offers two paths throughout this entire letter, a right path and a wrong path, he says, in essence, some of your brothers and sisters will wander from the right path. It's not uncommon. It's not abnormal. It's all too natural, in fact, in a fallen world. And if you have drifted from the right path, in fact, this morning, if you have drifted from the right path, if you know you are not wholeheartedly following the path of God's will for your life, if you're saying no to God in some area, and you you know what that is, the most important thing you can ever do is to immediately and sincerely and humbly turn back to the right path. And don't be all embarrassed like, oh no, you know, I've done something nobody else has done. No, this is what we're all doing. And we ought to be aware of this. And so we graciously and non-judgmentally pray with one another and lead each other back to the paths. And here is one of the best gifts that God has given the church to encourage turning back to the right path. It's the decisive component of faithful believers, those who, by God's grace, are endeavoring to walk on the path. James says, if someone brings him back, literally the word means to turn back, Right, it's it's the word it's from the word strepho, which uh, I I shouldn't go into this explanation, but you know we have strep throat, right? If you look at a strep uh, virus under a microscope, it's like a curly Q, all right? That's why they call it strep. It's about turning. Okay, you didn't need to know all that. I don't know why I said that, but uh, you you, uh, you you turn somebody. It's sort of it, it, the idea of the of the verb could mean you turn them around and point them back in the right direction, but that's not really in the context of what's happening here. It's not just turning him around. The idea is, is that we're going with him. That's why I really do like the, I, I rejected it against the ESV translation here at first. I was like, why do I have the word turn in there? That's what the Greek verb is, but really I got to thinking about it. He, they say to bring him back. And I think bringing someone back has the idea of coming with him, walking with him. And I think that's the, that's the overall idea here. That someone who brings him back must be a person who has not wandered, someone who is endeavoring to stay the course. And none of us do that perfectly, but we remain faithful. We struggle to do it. We remain faithful because we want to please the Lord with our lives. That's true. But here, James offers us another reason to remain faithful. I wonder if we've thought about this very much. Not for ourselves, but for our wandering brothers or sisters. If everyone wanders from the path, who's going to be left to bring anyone back? Before you make a decision to deviate from the path to go wandering off, you need to think about how your actions are going to impact your brothers and sisters in Christ with whom you have united and said, we are following Christ together. You think your sin and your lack of commitment are only personally implicating in your life that you're not really hurting anybody else. If you're a member of the body of Christ, you need to rethink that. You are weakening the body of Christ because you just took away one more faithful believer who can influence others to follow Christ through your encouragement and your example. This is how God has, has built the church. So instead, you need to follow the Lord sincerely and faithfully and humbly with the attitude that by His grace you are going to serve Him and honor Him no matter what because you need the boldness of a faithful believer to be able to come alongside another brother and sister and help that one get back to the path. If you know the Lord and you are in this assembly of believers, the rest of us need you to be faithful. We need to know that if we are ever tempted to wander from the path, someone is going to be there to come alongside us, to encourage us not to go that direction or to help us to come back. Will you watch over the rest of us? Will you be a shepherd? Will you be your brother's keeper? Will you be your sister's keeper? But you know, there are there's more than, than faithfulness and boldness needed in this dynamic in order for a sinner to be turned back to the path. There is a fourth decisive component to this dynamic that is absolutely necessary, and it's implied here in the text. I'm speaking of close relationships. If you do not build relationships within the church body, then you are not guaranteed that anyone will, have, will be there as a keeper, a shepherd to bring you back. If you do not build relationships within the church, then you will be unaware when a brother or sister becomes wandering or has a, a particular need that God is leading you to help with getting to know one another in the church, getting together on your own, being faithful to worship and activities as much as possible. And and, and this is not just to make us feel connected. This is a spiritual function that equips us to minister to one another, especially to encourage one another spiritually to stay on the path or to get back to the path. And I hope you can see, without my even mentioning it, how important that makes our discipleship relationships in the church. These groups that you have forged, some of you very recently, either one-on-one or maybe two or three together, or I've seen maybe as many as four or five in a group. These are the very kinds of relationships you need to be building if you are going to keep one another on the path or build up one another. Can I tell you something? When I was back... uh, uh, when I was back in Hendersonville, pastoring for 13 years of ministry, uh, there are a lot of ministry highlights you look back on after you leave a pastorate. But by far, for me, one of the most impacting, memorable parts of my journey as a pastor was something I didn't even really plan. It just happened as we started talking to some of the men and we started getting together. There was a two- to three-year period of time when I met every couple of weeks with five other men, two of whom are now with the Lord. I I did one of his funerals, and the other, I I attended the funeral within the past year. Very surprising. And we would talk about the scripture that we were studying. We would bear our burdens to one another. We would pray for one another, and we would walk together together. On the path. And the Lord, I, I was a younger pastor at the time. I know I still look really young, but I was a young pastor at the time. And uh, the Lord grew me during that time, and He grew the other men. And there were two or three times when one of the other men in the group wandered during our time together. And without being instructed, without having to read some manual about how to respond to a brother who stumbles, just knowing the word of God, we would double down on our encouragement of that brother. We would pray for him. We would call him. We would text him during the week to to encourage him to stay on the path, to bring him back. And after a couple of years or so of this, other men in the church began to catch wind of what was going on, and they wanted to be a part of it. And there was some criticism even that we were like having this great thing going on and nobody else was a part of it. And there was some pressure then for a meeting for all the men, not just for the few. So we got everybody together, all the men together, 20 or 30 of us, and we gave everybody a copy of R. Kent Hughes' a book It was pretty popular, Disciplines of a Godly Man, great book. And we assigned a chapter every couple of weeks and we read it, we came together, we prayed together, we discussed the chapter and uh, we, we shared testimonies and we encouraged one another to walk as men, leading our families, leading our marriages and so forth. Uh, and it was a, a great time. And guess what happened? It killed the group. It killed the group. Now, I'm not saying that getting the men together and reading Disciplines of a Godly Man and everything we did was a bad thing. It was a, lot of, it was a good thing. It was a good thing. There was a lot of encouragement that happened. But what I'm saying is, we lost the closeness of the relationships with the, with, the, with the six of us that we're meeting. We weren't sharing life on life anymore. We weren't bearing our hearts like before. You can do that one-on-one or in a small group that you learn to build trust. You can't do it with 20 or 30. Some guys don't want to say anything. Some talk too much, you know. And, and it never really, as, as deeply as we did in that group, where we would sometimes just tearfully be praying for one another when we met. We stopped doing discipleship, and we started doing a Bible study. And that was not the same thing. And after we finished the book, we never started the small or the large group again for several years. What I should have done, looking, looking back, is worked to set up more smaller groups so that other men could be spiritually encouraged this, the way our group was. And, and to do the bigger study, maybe maybe do a men's class with uh, R. Kent Hughes' book or maybe a, an extra meeting every once in a while and, and, and work through it. Nothing wrong with that. That's needed too. It's not like one is better than the other. But we lost that, those, those relationships. And we could have done the Bible study and the relationships together. Where the dynamic of bringing a wanderer back takes place is within these relationships. Preaching is essential. We can never get away from it. That's where God has put his priority. But we can preach all the time and never have the conversation about, okay, are we living this out and how are we doing it? How are we modeling it? So you pray that in your discipleship relationships, you will grow to encourage one another. And if you do not have a partner or group yet, I I want this to happen naturally as the Lord leads. There's no pressure to do this. We, We just have sort of started this in the culture of our church. But you pray for the Lord to guide you in his timing to that kind of relationship. What James does here is offer a dynamic with these decisive components that make his admonition possible. Two and only two distinct paths, wandering sheep, faithful believers, close relationships, there's one other decisive component, and that is a vibrant, sanctified congregation. In other words, an assembly of believers in which there is life and where the members are interested in staying on the right path Because James says, whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Why does it say he will save his soul from death? I mean, is is the guy's sin really that bad? Some commentators take it that way. Oh, James must be talking about some really bad sin here. I don't think that's what's going on here. I mean, James is looking at the whole letter and encouraging us to, to follow it in this way. I think what he means is the same thing that Proverbs 14, 12 and 16:25 both say. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. When you have wandered to the wrong path, death is not the beginning of the path. Death is at the end of the path. And when you choose the beginning of the path, you are also choosing the end of the path. All the sin that we can get into, has the stench of death. Remember how dramatic James is about sin? Chapter 4, for instance, he says if we're merely friends with the world, we are spiritual adulterers and enemies of God. He says toward the end of chapter 4, when we make plans without God's will in, in, in mind, we are evil, arrogant boasters we think, wow, James is really going over the the top describing how sinful we are. No, he just knows what sin is. He knows the nature of it. He's looking at sin the way God would look at sin. you know why? Because all sin leads to death. Paul reminds us of this in Romans 6, 23. The wages of sin is death. An unbeliever will stay on the wrong path to his eternal destruction but a believer will begin to be repulsed by the stench of death and come under conviction on that wrong path and turn back, especially because he has another believer who serves as his shepherd helping to bring him back from wandering. And with this dynamic is taking place, we have a congregation that is marked by life and righteousness And we will be equipped not only to lead wandering brothers and sisters back, but even to find those who are on the broad way to eternal death and lead them to eternal life through the gospel. So after all that James has taught us and all the ways he has called us out for not living up to our faith, he leaves us with one final message as he has done so often in the letter, James will not leave us with the focus on ourselves. He leaves us pointing on our focus to one another. He doesn't say, now you make sure you're living up to your faith. Rather, he says, you watch over your brothers and sisters and help them live up to their faith. You can't do that unless you're living up to your faith bring back the wanderer compassionately, James says. Be a loving shepherd after the example of our great and good shepherd who loved us and gave himself for us. If we can follow the Lord in this area of obedience, then all of us together will be encouraged to live up to our faith. Let's pray together. Father, we're